Welcome, everyone, to Cress's Corner. I think this is number four. We have uh, Nicholas Herriger here to talk about his business, his uh, exec coaching business. Um, so finally, a fourth installment. I've been a little bit on hiatus doing other things, focusing my attention on, on uh, money generating things versus doing these interviews. But we'll bring them back. I have a few others. Um, so quickly, you know, this goal, my goal of these things is basically to talk to companies and people that I know and, and learn something about what they do and how it impacts the industry. Hopefully it's not going to be too much PR fluff, although I've gotten some critical response that some of it was a little bit too PRE. So I'm not, I'm going to avoid that trying to anyway, going forward. Um, so anyway, I have Nicholas and Nicholas, uh, has a really interesting background and he actually does really interesting stuff in my view. Um, he is a executive coach for basically startups, both like CEOs and CTOs and, you know, C-level execs kind of like in the early growth stage. So between, you know, starting at five to like a hundred people. Um, so we're going to just talk about the key obstacles and challenges of these CEOs and CTOs. Um, yeah, we've been friends for quite a while. I think since COVID, um, if I remember correctly, we, uh, he reached out and said, Hey, is there anyone that wants to get to get together, brave the disease, disease city and go out for lunch or something like that? I'm like, sure. Get me the fuck out of my basement. So I hooked up with them. We went dinner, uh, breakfast, uh, lunch in, uh, in the, in Noe Valley. Um, we both have a passion for cars. We drive almost every month uh to on the Kirby's up in Marin and cause some trouble there. Most likely ultimately one of us is gonna get arrested one day for running over these stupid Marin bikers out there, but not, not so so far so good. So anyway, I've known him for quite a while. Um Nicholas, what do you got to say? How's everything with you? And uh tell me a little bit about yourself and your coaching practice. Well hello everyone and thanks for having me uh Eric. Um yeah, what is there to say that you have not already covered? Um, maybe a little bit of background, you know, used to be a lawyer, started a mobile game studio afterwards. Uh, then I founded Gondola, platform for dynamic pricing and offer optimization and free-to-play games that we sold to Tilting Point in 2019. And since then, I've worked with founders on scaling their companies, you know, usually somewhere from a team of five to a team of 100. Uh, and I've also become an active angel investor. Um, so that's where I'm at right now. Well, you know, we hang out a lot or once, you know, periodically. We actually went out to dinner with the with the wives the other night, which was quite cool. And something I haven't done, I think, in like a decade since the kids were born. More than a decade. Um, but, you know, we rarely talk about your business uh, because... Yeah, we usually we talk about cars and other stuff. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I'm actually kind of interested to hear what you have to say. And one of the things that's, and this is, I know is a bit of an antagonistic question to start off the gate, but you know, uh, one of the questions I have is like, you know, my business makes sense, right? So I provide information to my clients to give them an edge in the market. If I do, if, if I am right, they do well. And if I don't, they kick me to the curb. You know, our incentives are aligned more or less, Right. With, with coaching, and similar to like even lawyering to some degree, uh, but the coaching in particular, you know, I can see how it's valuable 
for coaches. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I see the value in what you do for founders and execs, right? But the incentives don't seem to be aligned in my view. Like for you, you want to charge them as much money as possible for as many hours as possible, right? But they want to get the answers and the solution as fast as possible. So that just seems really pr problematic at best. You know, like, what am I missing here? Like, aren't they after like quick solutions and quick answers to their questions? And doesn't that not align with the fact that you want to charge them well, oodles of money, you know, hours? Okay, a couple of interesting thoughts here and a couple of assumptions. Uh, so, so the first one I want to, you know, differentiate, coaching is not consulting. Coaching doesn't mean, you know, somebody shows up and it's like, hey, I have problem X, you know, I got to fix my user acquisition channel, you know, tell me what to do. And then, you know, somebody goes, you know, and, and crunches a bunch of numbers and comes up with a fancy PowerPoint and then says, okay, here, you know, this is, this is the prescribed solution, you know, now pay me. Um, coaching is much more about, you know, growing uh, in your role, you know, personally as, as a founder, as an exec, uh, in order to become better and more efficient at what you do which very much translates into a better and more efficient organization because you are the lead of that organization. So that's one thing. As, as far as the misaligned incentives, I see what you mean. You said like, hey, don't you have a motivation to drag them along for as long as possible? Is that a fair statement? Basically. Yeah. yeah. Okay. The psychologist model, basically. Yeah. Or, or the psychologist yeah, I'll model. fix you, but I won't fix you. You know, <laughs> yeah. that sort of thing. Like I'll dangle that you're getting better carried in front of you, but you're not quite there yet, so you still need me, right? That, that kind of an idea. Yeah, exactly. so um, interesting. Uh, my, my response to that, you know, before we get into more details, I guess, uh, you know, what I do is that's kind of like saying that a doctor has an interest in his patient not getting better, right? So I think, first of all, that's a relatively cynical approach. Um, besides, from a business perspective, going back to the doctor example, the doctor is probably way better off building a great reputation and attracting more patients uh, and other opportunities, you know, maybe speaking opportunities or consulting gigs or whatever it is, then he would be trying to juice every last dollar out, dollar out of his existing patients. And that's the same for me. You have to consider that the majority of my business is, is built on reputation, recommendations, and word of mouth, right? I don't run, you know, uh, 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 campaigns out there. You know, there's no performance marketing for coaching. It's not how it works. It's essentially you do a good job. And then people talk and then, you know, you get more clients and more opportunities. Um, also, I tell my clients in the very beginning, you know, when I start working with them, that my goal is to make myself obsolete. And quite frankly, when I do, so, you know, when I say, yo, you're perfectly fine on your own, you know, go ahead. Um, that's a very satisfying feeling. So I don't know if that answers your question, but um, that, that, that's I... my response to your suspicion. No, well, it kind of answers my questions. I, I I don't know if I agree with you on the uh, <laughs> on the on the doctor thing. I think doctors are nowadays like more about churning and burning. But but I think I understand what you're saying. So let's dig in a little bit. Like, what is it exactly that you think um, that what are like the big challenges that you see with execs starting the, these founding companies? Because the, the the one thing that that's, that's clear to me is that there are so many more startups in the gaming space right now. So the opportunity seems to be relatively large for you. But now, like with all those companies like going after the same type of market, like what are the biggest challenges that they these companies are seeing when they're growing from from just like the startup phase, the seed funding to you know a round, you know, from five to a hundred people. So. 
if we if we leave the business challenges, you know, in the gaming world and in the macroeconomic world aside, so just like from a you know coaching founders and executives perspective, you know, what what are the main challenges that I encounter? Um, the first one always is focus, and that sounds like oh yeah, die, you know what what's the news here? But it's very very easy, and I'm also you know speaking from personal experience, having been in that founder seat for a decade, actually a little more even. Um, it's very easy to get carried away, um, especially, you know, if you're flush with cash, uh, but even without, right? So there, there, there are a, a, a lot of, uh, you know, things to try out and to sniff out. It's what I see a lot is people working on too many things simultaneously, you know, distractions, spreading themselves and their resources and their, their teams too thin. What you really want to do is you want to have a hypothesis, which is what every you know company is pretty much built around. Um, and then you want to get as fast as you can to some sort of a prototype that you can get feedback on quickly. And then you want to gather data and then you want to iterate. So first thing is focus, focus on one thing and don't try to build three things at the same time. You look puzzled. Well, I guess my, part of my... When when you say stuff like that, that doesn't seem like the personality type of someone that's going to start a company, right? Do they have that kind of focus and drive, or are they more creative and you know visionary and moving from thing to thing, right? So isn't that a tough ask for people that were are are kind of in that mold of people that do startups? Want to know how your results stack up against other gaming apps? Well, now you can. Apps Flyer, the industry leader in measurement and mobile analytics just released a new tool providing benchmarks on 21 key growth metrics for over 20 categories in 25 markets for both iOS and Android. And it's available now for free at appsflyer.com benchmarks. Yes, you heard that correctly, completely free. In just one click, you can easily compare installs, retention, revenue, media cost, and much, much more. With these benchmarks, you'll be able to get intel on your competitors, set goals based on insights from the top 10% of mobile games, explore new markets and growth opportunities, inform soft launches, and understand market dynamics and trends so that you can adapt your UA strategy accordingly. Over the past seven years, AppsFlyer's industry data reports, trends, and insights have helped thousands of mobile app marketers to excel at their jobs and grow their apps. Trust them, they know their data. Head to appsflyer.com slash benchmarks now for more info. This episode is brought to you by Data AI. Yes, they were called App Annie back in the day, but let's not talk about that. Let's talk about how Data AI is the first company to combine consumer and market data with the power of artificial intelligence. And Data AI does this to unlock unique consumer and market insight to accelerate competitive advantages across all digital channels worldwide. What we here at Deconstructor Fund really like is Data AI's Game IQ tool. It's this fantastic market and competitive intelligence tool for mobile gaming that allows publishers to really get to the feature level of a game without doing the full-on deconstructing first. Using this tool, your team can quickly tie features to performance KPIs, which will help you make difficult roadmap decisions. It's also a great tool to identify hidden growth opportunities as you can analyze games on a scale. As you well know, there are hundreds of thousands of gaming apps in the App Store and thousands of new mobile games released each month. And while we don't want you to stop reading and listening to Deconstructor Fun, the fact is we can't cover it all. With Data AI, and especially their Game IQ tool, you'll be able to efficiently determine what features provide a lift, 
make roadmap decisions based on accurately modeled expected outcomes, discover how competitors lifted performance through feature releases, benchmark performance against your competitors, focus with confidence on the highest potential genre for a new game release. We here at Deconstructor Fun are huge fans of Data AI, so what are you waiting for? Go to Data AI and try the service for free. Well, what assumptions are you making about a visionary founder? I mean, I, I think of people like uh, Pincus. Pincus is always the big best example in the gaming space because he saw lots of success, but ultimately abject failure, right? So, but he's a visionary and he was all over the place. Like, you know, he's, <laughs> it's like, I don't know if he could be focused in, in, in an hour, much less a, a day or a week, you know? So it's like, and I don't know him personally, but that's what I've been told anyway. But like, I, I, I find these like creatives, like kind of like all over the place, hard for them to focus. Is that a problem or is that is that just my false assumption well i think the 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 both the the first assumption that i think you are making is that we are talking about single single founders right you know one guy driving the entire thing uh most successful companies and i have to admit i I obviously know who mark pincus is and i've met him but uh i don't know if they were co-founders at zynga but i'm pretty sure they were so usually there is a division of labor in the sense you need one guy that is the visionary absolutely you know somebody who is you know has the pie in the sky idea and you know can sell this very well and and is uh, is inspiring to people and investors and all of that but you also certainly need an operator and somebody to reel that vision in and said okay i know this all sounds great but you know what is the first step towards uh, making that vision a reality and also what is the first hypothesis that we have to prove or or disprove in order to see if we can go somewhere so i don't think it's that black and white um with visionaries but but speaking of team uh, another thing that is really, really crucial, um, you know, for execs and founders and what they do is is the whole idea of weight distribution, right? It, it's obvious, but sometimes people forget, you know, founders can't succeed alone. They need a team, you know, they need a bunch of hands on deck. But there is a progression over time, you know, early on when you're like two guys in the garage, uh, you don't really have any choice but to own all aspects of your business, right? I mean, you're the visionary and you're the guy that goes to the post office and everything else in between. As the company grows, this becomes a problem. A founder that's involved in everything that the company does um, eventually um, becomes the primary bottleneck of his own organization. Because, you know, this is like this impasse that everything has to go through, you know, all of the decisions, you know, all of the the processes, everything has to go through a founder. Um, But most founders realize this way too late, right? So they are in this growth phase and they've just grown their team from, I don't know what, 15 employees in in January to, you know, 50 employees, so 5-0 in December. And all of a sudden, you know, it's just like, wow, we don't have the structure to support this. And also everything is still going through me. And then to undo this is is quite hard. So generally, that's the, the weight distribution and not becoming the bottleneck of your own organization. That's a challenge I see with almost, I don't want to say everyone I work with, but 75% of the people I work with or have worked with. Um, the last one that uh, is especially with technical founders, but in general is, is oftentimes, you know, not totally clear to them is the need to master human relationships. So uh, again, founders can't succeed alone. And, and oftentimes it's, oh yeah, he, he or she is a great communicator, right? As an, oh yeah, if you can talk well and all that, that will solve the problem. But in reality, that's only part of it. If you want to get people 
to the pinnacle of their abilities and build the best possible team. And most importantly, you know, take your vision going back to the visionary and push this forward. You have to genuinely connect to them, right? You have to enable them uh, to connect to others. And there is this idea that you have to, you know, give them a safe space um, so that you can melt their defenses and essentially, you know, really tap into all of the resources that they have. Hmm. Definitely feels like there's a lot of feeling involved here. Definitely out of my wheelhouse for sure. You know, is this like, is this actually necessary? I mean, can't you run it like a, you know, uh, an army or like a platoon as opposed to this kumbaya bullshit where you're like <laughs> getting communication or is it, is that that's why I'll never be a, a successful entrepreneur? Uh <laughs> Lots of things here, but the first thing I want to say is I knew this was going to be fun because you were not going to have some of the things you know that I do or say. But um, I clearly, do not have a lot of these skill sets. That the, is well, it, it was skill sets also, but I mean, you you just brought up it's like you know why don't we just run this you know purely purely based on hierarchy? You know, use the general. You know, here are a couple of lieutenants, and 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 the rest is you know the platoon, and they are just just go out and told as you are due, right? That's essentially what you do, and and we let the numbers uh, determine, um, you know, if we're doing well or not. Um, there are a lot of different ways to do things, and there are absolutely you know successful companies out there that were or are st still being run on that concept. Um, I usually don't find this you know, most efficient. And I have seen this, you know, attempt fail several times. While the other one, especially in an early stage company, when you're so dependent on the people and then on everyone pulling their weight, uh, I think it, you know, I, I prefer the, you know, let, let's play together rather than let me tell you what it is that you have to do and afterwards shut up. I, I prefer that approach. Um, what you have to consider is this. Humans are super diverse, right? And especially programmers will always tell you, hey, you know, what I really love about a machine is, you know, I put in an input and I know the programming language and it's very predictable for me for the how the machine will react. And then, you know, with humans, it's just, yeah, I say the exact same thing to 10 different people and I get 15 different reactions. And that kind of like freaks me out. Um, but humans also all run on a very similar programming language. And, and, and part of that language is that we all have basic needs, right? We all want to feel safe. We all want to feel seen and we all want to feel heard, including you, Eric, right? That is, uh, that even applies to Eric Kress. And so once these basic needs are met, you're no longer in conflict mode. You're no longer defensive. And as a result, your abilities get a huge boost. You become better at pretty much everything, you know, taking in information, learning new things, taking risks, you know, dealing with conflict, just to name a few. So people really open up. And that means, um, that they are much more creative, which is particularly important for the gaming industry. Um, they're more efficient and they can pivot and adapt much quicker, you know, take somebody else's thought or product and go run with it. So if you're thinking about growing from five people, you know, to a hundred people, those are very important aspects um, on that. Yeah, journey. I, I, you know, I actually did a quick search just this, <laughs> in this moment, what CEOs have led by fear, right? <laughs> What are the top CEOs left by fear? You know what the first one was? Steve Jobs. It should have been, but it was. Uh, I thought it was going to be Steve Jobs, but it was like Weinstein. But I, that's not what probably I, Weinstein. That's not what we're here to talk about. No. no. But the second, the second one, you know who it was? Mark Pincus. He really. <laughs> it should have been. It should have been Steve Jobs, right? So, like, I 
what I would what I would counter your argument with is like, look, if you have all these like wannabe CEOs or wannabe like leaders of industry building their own companies and they have these type of people that are their mentors or that they look up to, particularly jobs, you know, it's like, I mean, don't people take the mentality of, of just running a tight ship, running a platoon well, as opposed to, I, I, think- I mean, Larry Ellison was, was notorious, right? For being a screamer, Pincus was a screamer, right? And uh, micromanager. Um, but anyway, all right. We'll, we'll get- no, no. Well, I, I have to just quickly respond to the Steve Jobs thing. So I think Steve Jobs very much checks your box of you know the being the great visionary and and having a little bit of a yo I I know better my way or the highway approach. And he obviously was really really successful at that because he could just see around corners that other people couldn't see around. Right. So we can absolutely agree on that. Um, and that's what people admire him for and, you know, try to emulate him and, you know, speaking of the mentor and, you know, and, and this is who you look up to. Pretty much everyone you talk to says, yeah, yeah, but, uh, you know, he was a tricky person to deal with, you know, and anybody who read the biography or all that say that. So I think there, there's a differentiation here going on. People absolutely loved his, his vision and his, you know, sense for product. Um, you don't hear so many people say, oh, he was such a fantastic manager of a publicly traded company. At least I haven't come across them. Got it. All right. So in your view, then, after I've come, you know, talk about the bad guys, uh, <laughs> what are the key characteristics of, you know, founders um, that are successful? There are lots, but I, I'm, I'm going to mention the ones that I think apply to you regardless of, you know, what it is that you do. So first of all, you need confidence, right? Um, for others to passionately follow your path, you must be confident in your vision. You must be willing to, you know, indulge in 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 your um, in your own thinking. And, and, and quite frankly, if you don't believe yourself what it is that you're doing, then no one else will. Now you guys say, yeah, dies. That's really obvious. But you come across founders sometimes that you know lack that. Um, what has to go along with this is humility. Um, and I know that sounds mutually exclusive, but let me explain what I mean. Humility enables you to not fall into the I know it all trap, right? Like the 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 arrogant, you're shaking your head again. Come on. I just this one I don't I don't I, I don't see, but uh, but I will let you continue. All right. You, all right. you, are, I think, you know, give me the, the, the pushback uh, in a minute. But so humility allows you to grow and see additional perspectives. It allows you to challenge your own assumptions, other people's assumptions, um, to open up to honest feedback and understand what the data tells you. So maybe to bring this to something that might resonate more with you. Unless you have humility, you're not going to be open to feedback, whether it's feedback by numbers or feedback by people telling you about your product, about your leadership style, doesn't matter. Now, would you agree with me that unless you are open um, to you know taking in you know numeric feedback or <laughs> or um for anybody who's listening eric just had a cat run over his desk so uh, that was slightly <laughs> distracting no but for anybody to you know improve and get better at what they do and nobody figures out you know the perfect product um, or the perfect leadership style right away you have to be open to feedback and unless you have a certain level of humility you're not going to be able um to take that in does that make sense? Uh, I, 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 <laughs> what I think is that 
you may have humility from the perspective. I don't know. A lot of these people that I've come across that have been successful don't have a lot of humility in the moment, but maybe have humility, you know, when they, when they have time to think about things. So they're given lots of inputs and then they kind of cycle that. And then they come back with, with revised kind of uh, picture, but so at first Having they are humility. defensive, right? At first there is like a lot yeah. of pushback and arguing back. And then three right. days later they might come back and say, "Yeah, you know, I I took this right. in and and I said, right. yeah." Would you say that reminds you of yourself occasionally a little, like? Oh, all the time, right? All the time, yeah, yeah, hundred yeah, percent. I mean, okay. I, I mean, it, well, I, my my personality on the podcast is quite a bit different than my personality with client contacts and clients. So like, I do take in a lot and listen more than I do on the podcast for sure. So, um, but yeah, everything I talk, everyone I talk to affects my, 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 my decision, my, my thought process on things. Yeah. Without going off on a tangent, I've had many, you know, encounters with you, you know, whether it, 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 where we had a difference of opinion or a different point of view, whatever, you know, including business, you know, where you first pushed back a lot and then later on thought like, oh yeah, I thought about this. Um, and also on the podcast, you know, more than once I have heard you start, you know, the subsequent week by saying like, hey, I got to come clean here. I said X and Y and Z last week, you know, and I got pushback on that or somebody called me or whatever. And, you know, I was, you know, I was wrong about that. So, um, you know, I, I, I think you are a uh, case in point. I, I, yeah, I just don't think, I don't think execs like to show weakness like that's your Yeah, but humility is not on, weakness. On the humility side. And and making yourself vulnerable. I mean, no, but I, I but it is perceived as weakness mm. to some degree. But all right, let's move on. Yeah, okay. We're, on. We're, we're, we're about okay, to go I believe, but I, I believe in the rest. That statement. It, it, it's not. Um, other things, very obvious. Tenacity. Yo, whatever you think, how hard this is and how long it will take, it will always be multiples of that. And anybody who's ever started a company, and certainly people that have started multiple companies, will confirm that whatever you envision it's gonna be worse and harder and take longer so you have to be able to endure a lot of setbacks and disappointments over and over and over again to have a shot right. at i speed. mean that yeah that that makes total sense all what right else you got so um motivations uh what's your motivation to get into this um you come across people that think oh my god you know like starting a company is so cool you know i'm gonna do this and you know i'm gonna own the whole thing and i'm gonna be super rich you know five years down the road um yes that is uh that is you know making a whole bunch of money is 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 a you know very understandable motivation uh that that pretty much everyone who you know becomes an entrepreneur has but in order to be successful you know if you're just setting out and you want to make a quick buck um that's not a good way to you know get there and actually you know have the big exit and make a whole bunch of money you need to be driven by the right goals. Um, and the right goal, especially early on, is usually that you want to create something in order to solve a problem. That's what drives you. Because the status quo drives you nuts because you think, you know, what people are doing right now is is so stupid and inefficient and something. And there could be a way better product or service, game, whatever it is, you know, to um, to to solve that. Um, and you just have to take on this challenge because it's just like it just drives you mad. Um and it's almost like one of those things that you're so interested in and so passionate about that you would happily work on it for free for a while um, just because it's interesting. Right, I, I got it. I got it. So you're basically trying to solve a problem. I get it. What's next? As opposed to just trying to become rich. Uh, 
one more that I would mention here before we move on is conflict resolution. You know, people always say, oh, I've known the guy for five years. It's all so great. It's like, there will always be conflict. There will be conflict between the founders. There will be conflict with board members, with investors, with the team, with your customers, with everyone around you. There will be conflict. So that is not avoidable. So the big question is, how do you deal with conflict, right? Do you shy away? Do you love a good fight? You know, is it something in between? Are you trying to win, you know, every argument for the sake of winning? Um, those are all the right questions. And one of the crucial um, characteristics of successful founders is that um, they are good at dealing with conflict on all different levels. Would you like consider this conflict like political conflict, that sort of thing? That's like dealing part of it. Relationships? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is where I fail miserably because I just don't like dealing with so i don't know i don't want to make this all about me but like <laughs> this is why this is what it's like dealing with like all these different personalities and being all kumbaya and trying to get everyone on the same page and aligned that's that like it doesn't even make sense to me and i and i would push back a little bit on this one too i think a lot of times people run things as 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 uh you know totalitarian leaders right <laughs> and they just mow through people you know you don't like it fucking get there's the door you know like and so i don't know that that okay that type of even if that was true okay so maybe this is you know you can rule with an iron fist you know internally but didn't you just say two minutes ago hey you know my personality towards my clients is a little different than towards my you know like that than it is on the podcast right so you cannot really right. rule with an iron fist you know to right and also way. like yeah if you're an executive and you can't do that with your board right if you have investors that are vcs you're not gonna be just you know blasting them I get it. All right. All right. Well, I, I guess la last thing more... about that, if if we back into this, like what's the most efficient and successful and makes the most money and all of that, the iron fist approach, I mean, yeah, maybe you, if you're running a sweatshop in a, you know, certain country around the world and, uh, you know, and, and, and you have 10,000 people that do the exact same thing all day long and it's just like faster, faster, faster. Okay. But if you try trying for... To, for example, to create a game company, um, I would challenge it. But in any event, let's move on. Okay, from this. so so I, I'll say one thing more thing about this, <laughs> I, I, and I know I'm talking about more bigger companies. I think probably is part of my 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 focus here is like so like Apple for instance. Like every story I hear about Apple is basically the same. Is that there are basically six people in Cupertino that run that whole company, right? And if you go off the rails in any way, they're coming after you, right? So. What they are worried most about, even at the senior, senior exec level, is that they get a call from one of those six people or an email saying, hey, this advertisement was fucking wrong. This product announcement was wrong. The communication was wrong. And so, like, I, I think Stop Jobs just basically created that culture within that company. And I think that that's what I'm talking about. It's like, it's all fear in a lot of ways, right? It's, a, you know, like, you know, you're just, you're on razor's edge constantly. And so, like, I don't know. I don't know if that's the right way. I mean, clearly Apple's been one of the most successful companies in the world, right? But like, anyway, so. Well, well two things about that. First of all, um, requirements and challenges in a publicly traded 100,000 people company, very different from what you asked me about, you know, right. it's like, no, how do you true. get to that's 100 people early on? That's number one. And number two is, um, so the more political the environment becomes, the more individuals are going to be focused on doing stuff that makes them look good and covers their ass rather than pushing the business forward. That, I believe, is 
pretty much always true. And yes, it's hard to avoid that completely when a company you know grows beyond a certain size. But there are definitely companies where this happens more and less. And I don't think it's good for business. But that's just me. All right. So what are the characteristics then of founders that you find fail in their uh, aspirations to build a company from five to 100? Well, aside from lacking the things that I described before, uh, once again, attitude and arrogance, right? I know it all. I'm the best. This is easy. Who the fuck are you? Right? Like pretty much what you just described before, you know, <laughs> my way or the highway. Don't question me. Just do as you are told. I am the general. You're nothing. That's a recipe for failure because. Yeah. And I think, I think fundamentally you and I disagree on this point, but I think I agree on the rest, but, but let, we don't need to keep. All right. We that. don't need to keep you know, beating that dead horse. Um, micromanagers is, I think something that you, um, that you mentioned earlier, uh, I remember hearing the term. So the type of leader that can help himself, but get involved in everything, every process, every decision. Um, and, and there's always like the pretentiousness around it. Like, so they pretend to take people off the leash. It's like, Hey, here, you know, you run yeah, yeah, this yeah. Not right now, but then, you know, the marketing team is having the zoom call and then, Oh, I'm just, you know, while I'm eating my ramen noodles, I'm just casually going to dial in and listen to it. No, no, no. Just ignore me. I'm just a fly on the wall. Right. Um, yeah, nothing. Yeah, nothing's more like dehumanizing than that kind of micromanagement. Yeah, and what happens? Yeah. So exactly, and what? So what happens if you dehumanize people that work for you? Yeah, what happens yeah, to that? Bad news bears. Yeah, they they bail. They don't want to. They well, don't first of all, the performance suffers, and eventually they say, "Fuck this! I'm going to do something else." All right, what else do we got? Um, also was mentioned before you know uh shitty communicators but i think i want to approach this more from the angle from the angle of a lack of transparency right so you like there's the exact team is keeping everything very close to their chest right and nobody knows where they are as far as you know how much money we've left in the bank how much revenue we are making you know what the numbers were for last week you know what the goal is what the product plan is what the vision is you know they all just get you know like this pigeonhole view of this one thing that you do and other than that shut up and uh, so nobody knows what the big game plan is except for a very select few and um and and so two things happen the one thing is uh they don't really know what's going on it's not very um motivating or um you know if, if you if you don't have any context on you know, why this task right now matters the other thing that's going on is the lack of transparency and the less information they have the more they start speculating you know the more stuff happens to the grapevine and stories come out and all of that and um that's generally not good for a coherent team so you might think oh i'm doing them a favor by not disclosing that things are hard right now well guess what People can tell things are not going well, You probably just based on your body language, right? Unless you are like right. a master spy, you won't be able to hide it. So might as well come clean and make them part of the solution. That's the much better approach. Um, but yeah, I see that a lot. Uh, the last thing, it's obvious, but you know, people start companies in areas where they have no true domain expertise or you know, relevant experience. You know, I'm just doing this thing because it's damn cool. You know, like... There's so many people right now doing generative AI because that's the new buzzword, you know, now that NFT and, you know, crypto are not so cool anymore, but generative AI oh, is going to be so revolutionary. It's great, which it will be. 
no doubt about that. But there's a lot of people trying, you know, to to chip away at this, where you really wonder, like, what do you have to do with this? You know, what is your relevant experience? What's your domain? Yeah, I mean, like, dude, this is like 75% of all Web3 games were started by people that probably never made games in their lives. Well, exactly. Right? They all never made NFT games bros. in their life. They didn't have any. And, 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 and by the way, right. it's the, not... And the worst example of this, just to say, I got to figure out the name of this company, but it's the six guys from HBO that went off to make a shooter, an NFT shooter. It's <laughs> like the most absurd thing ever. I think it was yeah. funded by one of the big VCs, but well, it's ridiculous. I, here's the thing. If it was, for example, a heavily story-based shooter and they brought the license and the IP with them and all of that, and they are just thinking, well, there's this thing and all that, and you know, one or two maybe were like hardcore games or something... I'm not going to say they don't have any domain expertise. By the way, I don't know exactly what company you're talking about, what they're building. So this is all speculative. But I'm just saying, I gotta you know, just I gotta, because I gotta, you've I never made a game doesn't mean you don't have any domain expertise. But there are some people that literally, I, I don't know. It's just like, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And you're just wondering. So you're just once again doing this for, for the wrong reasons, I think. Um, all right. So I do have one question that I've, that's kind of been bothering me about this whole thing. And this is part of my... My uh, my experience as you know working at companies is when you're hiring people like in in this growth stage. What is more important? Is it more important to find employees that share your vision or employees that challenge your vision, right? So that you have a sounding board of the people that you hire, or do you just fire find people that are loyal and and share share the vision? I guess that's always been my question because a lot of times. In my my experience, is a lot of execs hire people that uh, don't question their vision. They're just more like uh, you know good minions, right, to help them execute their vision. Right? They don't want people to challenge them because that creates more conflict, and they just want things to get done the way they want them to done. So anyway, what do you what do you what what is kind of your like expert take on that? Before I jump into that, I'm actually really curious what's your take on it. So you just asked me what's more important, vision or you're just people following along? How would you answer that question? I don't know. My question my thing is that you want people to challenge you to make so you make better decisions, like fundamentally. Like I maybe mean, and that's probably been my role throughout my career. So it's like I so I'm like just, you know, betting my own book, right? Or or you know, put but but at the end of the day, I mean, there's a lot of times that execs just hire people that are loyal, right? That they know will not, and I'm not going to name names here because I, don't I know who you're thinking about even yeah. more trouble. Um, but like at the end of the day, they just hire people that are yes men that will do what they say and that, that, that don't challenge the status quo because they do not want to deal with that kind of like things. And I've heard these executives say these words. It's not like, this is not like, <laughs> it's not like some like secret either. So, People don't really get promoted based on merit, but more based on, uh, I guess, loyalty, right? Um, yeah. So I, I think, you know, for once we're fairly aligned in, in, in the assessment of this question. So the, the, you need both in the end, right? You need people that um, that are passionate about the larger vision of the company because the vision, you know, is what drives the mission of the company. So if I work somewhere where I don't really care about this, like, you know, if it happens, great. If it doesn't, whatever, um, that is, is not going to make me go the extra mile. So you have to, you know, be able to subscribe to the overall vision and mission of the company. But that doesn't mean, you know, as an exec, from my point of view, that you want to surround yourself with a bunch of fanboys, which is what you described before, right? Just like loyal fanboys. 
um, difference of opinion, constructive criticism, and going back to that, you know, conflict are all very healthy and needed to find the best way forward. Um, so you want a healthy discourse uh, and you want to encourage debate. And that will only happen if you have people that, you know, feel safe enough and, and you know, feel heard and, 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 you know, dare to speak up and push back and say, I think we're on the wrong course here. This is not going to work. And by the way, I have the data to back it up and we have to, you know, recalibrate. Um, if, if your goal really is to have the boss uh, have the best possible outcome you know whether it's on a product level or on a you know whole company level then i think that is um by far the best way forward to run a successful business but i also know there are a lot of executives out there that have a different approach the hard part of selling your video game well that's simply letting the community and players know it exists. That's particularly true if you're about to launch a new game and don't have an established brand yet. What's the solution? Well, it's creating your own dedicated online presence that lets you connect directly with players, gather signups for your email campaigns, and communicate things like updates about your game's development process or new features. You can build an online storefront, grow your community, run pre-orders and subscription programs, and generally bring in more long-term revenue by selling game keys, virtual goods, or bundles. Especially for indie developers, pre-orders are underutilized lifeline, but any size studio can benefit from them. That time block before the game is fully released, it's prime opportunity for building awareness and getting early stage pre-launch revenue, which can be critical for sustaining your project throughout the development cycle and helps you forecast your game's first year sales. Exola can help you accomplish this with Exola Game Sales. Want to know more about how to get started generating more revenue for your game? Visit exola.pro slash game sales or go to the link in the podcast description below. Got it. And and the other question I always have um, is like, how do you actually manage these guys that you're talking to, or guys or girls for that matter, that you talk to that their personal and the professional balance, right? So I imagine these founders who are growing their business just have no life besides what they do at the office. Um, what do you, how do you recommend to, you know, balance that? Um, you know, what sacrifices required? Like, how, yeah. How do you manage your time when you're trying to build something like this? Well, what's even more important than managing your time. And you're right. You'll spend pretty much every waking hour on, on this thing is how you manage your attention, right? Because you can also, you know, be with your family or, you know, play tennis or something. If your mind is still completely on the company all the time, then yes, you might be spending your time playing tennis, but, but really your attention is, is, is on something else. So in one word, it's got to be sustainable. And that is, you know, not the same for everyone out there. Um, but this old saying, it's a marathon, not a sprint, is true. And um, and so startups usually start with nothing, right? There's no money, there's no office, no team, no product, no marketing, no strategy. Just it, it, It's just nothing. So getting this off the ground, e even somewhere, takes huge commitment and sacrifice. There's no way around it. And if you're not ready to do this, do something else. Um, so you have to live and breathe this thing. And you're working on it way more than on a normal job. Uh, and when you're not working, as I said before, you're probably still thinking about it You're while you're laying in bed or while you're having dinner or something. 
the tricky part and like where you're crossing the, the the line into this is not sustainable anymore is is when your identity you know as eric for example uh, and your self-worth becomes so intertwined with what you do um that that that's all that you know defines you um and then you constantly push yourself beyond the net the limit you know you start neglecting self-care whether that's you know eating well working out sleep big 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 thing you know you just like screw that i'll sleep three hours a night and and i'll raise my hand here i've I've lived like that for years and and then it starts affecting your relationship you know to your partner starts to like the relationship to other people and so all of this support structure that you have as a human you know that is not only the founder of company x you know starts to crumble underneath you that then very much starts affecting your performance and that's then not but, sustainable but anymore. Don't you, I, I, look, I mean, don't you think, though, in order to be successful, that you kind of have to be a megalomaniac narcissist that basically sacrifices his entire life to get this thing done? Like, I think you have to make a lot of like... sacrifices and commitments. And I think there has to have to be moments where you're, you know, where the, the megalomania is what, you know, drives you, you and your vision forward in, in times of, you know, huge setback. Absolutely. And you can also, you know, live on a crazy sleep schedule, especially when you're younger, you know, for an extended period of time, but you can't do this for years. Eventually, you will fuck yourself up. That's just the truth of the matter. So you were asking about balance. Yes, you 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 gotta gotta go all in and push really, really hard and 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 not give up, right? And not pivot and, and change your mind when there's the first little bit of headwind and all that. That's all true. That's all all important. But um, if you think about it, you know what what's a founder that you can invest in? Um, I want to see from a founder that there is a certain level of recognition that if I just deplete my battery, you know, into the red zone all the freaking time, then that's not something you're getting, you know, applause from me for exclusively because I know. If I'm an early stage investor, for example, you know, on average, it'll even if things go perfectly well, it will take me seven years to see anything back. If you crash and burn four years in, that's not good for for business. So there has to be a balance. All right, all right. I guess <laughs> I I just seen that like you don't have to be a narcissist. No, I think you have to be a narcissist. I, 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 <laughs> I know it's it's a different kind of calculus, but these investment bankers that I that I was I started my career with. We're like basically all almost exactly the same type of story. And one of them came up to me, this Paul Barber, I think he's still around. And he's like, look, you know, you want to do this business. You're never going to see your family. You're never going to be able to like be there for your kids. Like you just have to sacrifice everything to be a successful investment banker. And that's exactly what happened to him. I think they got divorced. He probably was changed from his kids. They pushed half like, of their money, you know, the other way. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But, but he was fucking successful, dude. The guy was a baller, right? Like, I mean, he he was like the king of the crops when it came to the software uh, equity markets back in the way day, way long days in the 90s. Um, and I don't know. I remember that story specifically, him saying that. I'm like, holy crap. I'm like, this is not for me. Like, I'm not sacrificing my entire life to do investment banking. But that's kind of what was required. So I feel like um, uh, that, that, that. That may be a requirement for a lot of these type of, uh, you know, high functioning, you know, exact roles. But but uh, but I, I definitely understand why balance is important. Um, well, and also I think you can be incredibly driven and also incredibly successful without being a narcissist or, or neglecting 
everything else in your life and 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 just you know just going for this one metric and nothing else um people will agree with me here but you know that's my opinion got it um all right anything else like key to success for these execs and anything we haven't covered yet as far as yeah anything other key learnings that you have that uh you could share with the uh the folks that are looking into becoming successful narcissistic (laughs) megalomaniac founders neglecting everything else in their life founders look um I think one thing we haven't talked about yet, and you're going to roll your eyes again because that sounds like, you know, very feely again. It's like the whole passion idea. I think there, there is, there's no, you know, absolute, you know, pre-baked path that you have to take in order to be a successful founder. I think there's a, there, there's a lot of diversity out there, not only in like the people that do this, but also, you know, how they got to, to where they were. Um, what I think is, is very important. You ask yourself why you want to do this. Honestly, you know, just have a heart to heart with yourself. And by the way, asking all of these questions that might be painful um, in the beginning, I can only tell you when you're a year in, it's three times as painful because there's a lot more shit riding on it. So it'll never be as easy as in the very beginning. So ask yourself, you know, why do you want to do it? And maybe write it down and sit on it for, you know, a few weeks and look at it again, because eventually making money is great, you know, and that is also something that drove me as a founder tremendously because I, you know, there, there's this, you know, oh, wow, that w- wouldn't that be awesome? <laughs> but speaking of investment banking, if you're just looking for the career that has the highest probability, you know, to, to, to make a bunch of money for you, there are probably, and, you know, tell me if you agree with this statement, Eric, but there are probably way better uh, odds out there than, than starting a company. Right. No, that's totally true. Yeah. Like, so if you can get into investment banking or consulting, like, I think making lots of money, like the, you may you may not knock it out of the park per se, but you but, but you will make lots of money because there are a lot of starving founders out there, right? Yeah, um, right, right? So so that's one thing. But but if your motivation really is, it's like, hey, I want to give this a, a shot. I see this opportunity. I I I, th- I think I see something that other people are not, are not seeing. I have um you know I have the energy, I have the passion, um, and I want to change the status quo, build this product, build this service and, and see how it goes. And yeah, whatever, if nobody pays me for it in the beginning, I'll just tinker around with it. And I know I will win because I will learn a lot of shit along the way. And uh, and I'm okay, or my EU is okay, you know, walking away from it, you know, six or 12 months in or even, even sooner, then that is awesome. Um, because for most people that have, you know, runaway successes, this was not the first company they ever founded, right? They took multiple shots on goal before they got there. Um, the flip side is that speaking of, you know, your ego and your personality getting intertwined with what it is that you do and that then solely defines you, that is all the, the tricky part is that at some point you can't see the forest for all the trees anymore. You have a hard time putting in the feedback. You're in this conundrum where it's like, oh, is this a persevere or pivot or get out of it? And um, you have diminishing returns uh, on the learnings and on the relationship you build and all of that. So if something is not really working out within a year and a half, and once again, I've been guilty of making that mistake and you know, sticking to something too long, um, you should really ask yourself, you know, if I want to get out. And last thing, the best way to do this is to write down where you want to be at a certain point in time, let's say a year in, what needs to be true for you to continue. Because if you don't write it down, that story and that memory will change in your head 
over and over and over again. And it's really easy to fool yourself into something that will, you know, take too long. All right. Final question. In what way does your service help help the interactive industry? Being a founder CEO is hard. And it can also be very, very lonely um, at the top. So from an investor's point of view, if I'm investing in a company, I'm betting on the founding team. Um, the earlier I am, you know, stage-wise as an investor, the more I'm investing in the people and not in the existing business because there are not a lot of numbers to go around. So after an investor makes his investment, you know, his mind changes or goes to, you know, what's the most impactful way I can support a founding team um, to reach his full potential and make me the most amount of money. And I think coaching is a very powerful tool to do that. Awesome. And how could anyone reach you about your coaching services? Well, you, we... find, you find me on LinkedIn. Sh shill. <laughs> Shilling again. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, nicholasharriger.com or LinkedIn. I'll leave it at that. All right. Thanks for coming out. I'm looking forward to our next romp through uh, Marin. Hopefully we uh, take out some of those bike riders with the $10,000, $20,000 bikes. But That is Eric. That is not me. I have no interest in getting into that kind of trouble. Dude, anybody that has a $20,000 bike deserves to get run over at least once in their life. But uh, anyway. Don't you have a really right. expensive electric mountain bike? Hey, 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 that's not part of the joke. All right. Um, Sorry. Anyway, talk to you soon. Talk to you soon, buddy. Thank you. Bye. You did it. You made it to the end of the episode. As a fan of the show, it would help us out if you subscribe and leave us a review on the podcast service of your choice. More importantly, are you a member of the Deconstructor of Fun Slack group? If you have five years or more of games industry experience, go to deconstructoroffun.com slash slack and apply to join. Join the games industry's best professional community filled with peers always willing to lend a hand. Or subscribe to our newsletter to get all the latest insights from the Deconstructor of Fun content creators. Thanks for listening.